You are listening to Let's Be Honest with your host, Just Jonda. Let's be honest with your host, Just Jonda. I, of course, am Just Jonda, and I am back to talk to you about some cases that we have been following for quite some time. As you may recall, I was probably one of the few who followed the R. Kelly trial in New York State and broke it down for you every day. That's the federal trial. Um, for racketeering, a violation of the Mann Act, sex trafficking, etc., which we'll get into for a mo- in a moment, as well as the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. Now, for those of you who may not remember her, Ghislaine is the infamous bestie of the ever freaky, but apparently very dead, Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted sex offender who managed to do what most convicted sex offenders don't get to do, which is continue to be extremely wealthy, continue to traffic in in young women, uh, some rumors of young men as well, um, hobnob with the rich and famous heads of state royalty and all of that, some of which he was able to do because of the contacts that, and, and, and essentially the entree he was able to make into certain spaces because of Ghislaine Maxwell, who is originally from the UK, born of a very rich family, um, in the early 90s due to a myriad of issues that went down with her father, the patriarch of her family. Um, I believe it was Robert Maxwell, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the family no longer had the vast wealth that they one did once did, but her name, her presence still carried a certain amount of cachet. So when she relocated to the United States, she was still in a position to get a nice apartment in New York. And although living pretty low key, she still got invited to the right events with the right people, if you will. And if she went, she went. If she didn't, she didn't. But ultimately in making this years long, I want to say it was probably over 15 years long friendship, relationship, whatever they called themselves with Jeffrey Epstein, they had a mutually beneficial relationship. Him and the mysterious fortune he was able to amass and flaunt in everyone's faces 
and she with the context to um again folks who i guess the the hoity the hoity crowd you know the crowd that donald trump wanted to hang with but despite his money he was still considered to pretty much just be white trash with money for one of a better way of putting it not my words but certainly would be theirs <laughs> um and that's not that they didn't hang with them of course donald trump would say that he didn't know him very well but of uh, we have the video of him introducing him as a very good friend years ago so that is the connection now jeffrey epstein was arrested before Geelan maxwell and if there he mysteriously died while awaiting trial i know that i keep mentioning mysteriously but there seems to be a lot of that when it comes to these individuals so he died in uh, awaiting trial in new york she there were charges pending against her at the time but i do not believe i'm almost 100 positive she wasn't arrested until after um until after he was and then pretty much everything with the case the years of abuses all of that ended up hanging on her it just hanging on her head resting on her shoulders and it appears that she still has been unwilling um to give up the names of their other compatriots um so uh, Prince Andrew couldn't hide because he was accused directly by one of the victims, so they didn't have to give him up. Um, so basically she is taking the fall for not only Epstein, but for uh, many individuals uh, whom we can safely assume are probably more powerful than she is. Not giving her a pass and certainly don't want to imply that she should get one just because she's a woman. I've read uh, quite a bit on this case. I didn't just follow it. I also read um, several books regarding uh, their life together. One in particular, Filthy Rich, that had multiple accounts uh, of the testimony and the witness interviews with the young ladies or who were young girls um, in their teens in Florida who had the misfortune of encountering uh, Geelan Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. So that's the Geelan Maxwell case. And of course, the long drawn out saga of Robert R. Kelly, Kelly, uh, famed R&B singer, Mr. I Believe I Can Fly, 12 Play, and much more. Um, and of course, the infamous marriage to um, R uh, deceased um, R&B star, um, of the late 80s, I'm sorry, of the late 90s, um, early 2000s, Aaliyah. So this week, as I said, not a good time for them and just in time for hump day, which didn't work out so well for these two, considering what they were charged with. 
So let's start with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, and she was sentenced first. Ghislaine Maxwell uh, was convicted last fall of multiple counts of uh, sex trafficking, uh, largely related to the situation I was talking about, which was her um, uh, was her association with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. She was convicted on five counts, including sex trafficking of a minor. She finally came for sentencing uh, on uh, on Tuesday, which was June twenty eighth, in a in a New York federal court. Unlike R. Kelly during his sentencing, also in a New York federal court, but on Wednesday, she did speak at her sentencing. So did several victims. Um, she did not acknowledge that she was guilty. She acknowledged that she was convicted of the crime, but did not go so far as to um, accept any type of personal culpability. Um, the closest she came to that was saying, I'm sorry for the pain you've experienced, and I hope my conviction brings you closure. Now, in her case, the prosecution was asking for upwards of 30 years. Her guidelines were in the teens. Her guidelines actually were very similar to uh, Robert Kelly's, as a matter of fact. But um, her guidelines uh, ran from like 14 years to 19 years. These are the sentencing guidelines that take into account individuals' past, whether or not they've ever been convicted of anything. There is a, a host of things that are taken into account, mostly numbers, and then it gets broken down a little bit more than that. I won't bore you with those things, but um, it's, it's a lot of it is numbers driven. And so, and, and then the defense and the prosecution will make recommendations if they don't agree on a sentencing recommendation. They will make recommendations to the court via their sentencing memoranda, as well as arguing in court about what they think the court should sentence that person to. Now, the prosecution through the probation department recommended 20 years, which was roughly about, it, it was right within the range of her guidelines. So that that wasn't surprising, especially given the nature of the crimes that she was convicted of and the fact that even though it had to be narrowed down to a certain number of victims and counts, it was a general understanding that this was a pervasive scheme that had gone on for many years. Her attorneys, again, not unexpectedly, requested a sentence of between uh, four to five years. The judge in this case, again, looking at the calculation of about 14 to 19 years, only deviated slightly upward and sentenced her to 20 years with five years supervised probation when she gets out and another $700,000 in fines. Now, will she serve most of it? Well, 
if she does not uh, succeed on any type of appeal, probably because in the federal sentence, I'm sorry, in the federal system, sentencing is pretty draconian, not just in the amount, but also in the way that you do your time. It's actually very similar to the state that I practice in regularly. Good behavior still is going to put you in the range of about 85% of your time. So while she is not a terribly old person, and unlike Robert Kelly, who we'll get to in a minute, who has a whole other set of cases to deal with on top of the ones he was sentenced for this week, this is it for her. Now, there may be some civil cases that she may have to deal with, but those are just about money. And most of the civil cases are aimed at Jeffrey Epstein's estate because that's really where the money is. She was never the big money. She's not broke, but she was never the big money person in this relationship anyway. And depending on the terms of his estate uh, when he died and what he may or may not have left her and whatever is left over with family money. She's not the big fish really for anybody to go after if they want to get some kind of civil, um, just any any type of civil relief related to these cases. That's why you saw the one young woman who is still in the suit against the estate. She uh, also sued uh, Prince Andrew. And she did get a settlement, I believe, of about, uh, it's rumored that the settlement was um, about $14 million that obviously his mama had to pay. Okay, so it is, uh, the judge has already said where she's going to serve the time. So while they there was obviously no agreement on what her sentencing was when you've got the prosecution and probation recommending 20 years and her uh, her team recommending four to five years and her sentencing guidelines being 15 and a half to 19 and a half years. So clearly there was no agreement whatsoever between these parties on anything as it relates to the amount of time, not even arranged to stay within. I mean, talk about somebody being on the North Pole and somebody being on the South Pole, but it appears based on the fact that the court announced where she would serve her time, which a lot of times is something that is still the subject of uh, motions and, and memoranda, certainly from defense counsel, especially after the fact, it appears that that may have been the one thing that uh, there was some measure of an understanding on because it's been determined that she would go to the federal correction facility in Danbury. So the federal correction facility in Danbury is a minimum security uh, prison. So it is a prison. However, before we go, okay, she's going to do real time. Okay, it is a minimum security prison that also has 
an even more <laughs> minimum uh, section. It, it basically, it, let's, let's say it has a step down, if you will. So it has the minimum security prison piece, then it has a step down of a, um, basically a minimum security camp as they call it. So there is a camp cupcake element attached to this prison. So while there is the possibility that she may start out in the, well, for, let me get the language right. It is a low security prison that has a minimum security element of it that has a step down to a prison camp. So bottom line is no maximum security situation here at all. Um, and while initially it may not be so great, if she maintains good behavior, no reason to think that she won't. She, uh, other than this weird behind closed doors, whatever situation she had going on with Jeffrey Epstein, by all accounts, even among everyone who knew her, she's actually a relatively reserved person. So, um, barring her deciding to get into prison and, you know, turn into, you know, I, I don't know, that bitch. <laughs> Um, I don't think there's any reason to believe that she won't be on the road to the step down process that this minimum security facility has available. So will she be in Camp Cupcake given what she's charged with? Not initially, especially if there's the possibility of the public finding out, but will she ultimately end up in a camp cupcake situation? Yeah, in a few years. I think once the fervor dies down and the news is not interested in what's Ghislaine up to, what is prison like, prison uh, like for the infamous friend, girlfriend, whatever of Jeffrey Epstein, um, it, it, I think that uh, she'll be in prison camp within five years. And of course that's provided that nothing changes with her sentencing, uh, with her sentence via appeal because her attorney has announced that she does plan to appeal her case. That's par for the course, we'll see. So that is Ghislaine Maxwell. Next, and this is probably one that most of my audience was definitely waiting to hear about. Robert, the peed piper of R&B, Kelly, also known as R. Kelly. Now, R. Kelly was convicted in, let's go back, because it's been a minute with him, right? So, R. Kelly was convicted about nine months ago. So it has been quite some time uh, dealing with R. Kelly's case. Give me a second. I'm just moving my screens over a bit. 
He was convicted about nine months ago in New York, once again, so those New York um, those uh, those New York federal courts do not play. So he was convicted of one count of racketeering and eight counts of, of violation of the Man Act and sex trafficking. Um, so a combination of those. And if you go back and listen to our prior shows, because his his stuff gets a little a little all over the place because of. Uh, them, especially because of them convicting him of racketeering, which I think when his case is appealed and it's going to be appealed, his um, his attorney has already said it. They have actually already begun to lay the groundwork for that by asking for a new trial even before sentencing began, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. And just the mere fact that he hired this particular person um, and what their experience is with appeals and one quite infamously so in the very recent past. So on Wednesday, January 29th, officially hump day, also a bad day for Robert Kelly, um, the judge in his case, and it was the same judge, Judge Ann Donnelly, first dealt with some preliminary matters. Initially, she dealt with the notion of whether or not he should have a new trial. Since his conviction in September, I told you it was about nine months ago, since his conviction in September, he has hired new counsel. Now, I don't know if she is going to handle the Illinois cases and the Minnesota case. I suspect we will find out very soon because the Illinois cases, at least right now, are set for trial in August. Doesn't mean they'll happen in August, but that's at least when they're set. And given that during the pendency of um the New York trial and sentencing. So for the better part of a year, actually, I think maybe closer to two, he was held in New York. There's going to be, as there has already been some arguments about his, uh, he and his counsel's uh, ability to effectively prepare for trial um, in Illinois given that he was held in New York. Now, if he has wholeheartedly changed counsel and his and the counsel he has since hired to clean up or finish off New York handles all the cases, then I, I think that's probably a moot point, um, at, at least in terms of the ability to prepare as it relates to distance. The ability to prepare because of new counsel will be an entirely different question. However, these cases have been pending for a very, very long time. Although Chicago over the past two years has added additional counts to the charges they had against, they have against him, he was still charged there before 
the indictments in New York. It's just that the New York situation moved faster and the trial came up sooner. Um, if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. But if I'm wrong about that, then it's only because if they didn't charge him before, they charged him right around the same time because he was actually held in Chicago for a substantial period of time before being moved to New York. And then once he was moved to New York, he was there throughout um, the pendency of certainly the summer before his trial, I want to say, uh, since maybe um, spring 2021 through the trial, which was uh, August, September 2021, and, and certainly since his conviction in September 2021. So who did he hire? Well, this is where things get interesting. Um, and it's and it's relevant uh, to the events this week because she handled all of it. He handled he hired Jennifer Bonjean or Bonjean. I apologize if I say your name wrong, Ms. Bonjean. Um, but we're going to go with Bonjean right now. She is the attorney who handled the appeal in the Bill Cosby case which ultimately resulted in him winning uh, and getting out of jail last fall, last year. So this is a, a very interesting factoid. And I know that some people go, oh, well, then there you go. Not so fast. Now, is she, is, is she a bad mamma jamma? Absolutely. She did the damn thing in that case. And however we may feel about his conviction um, from a moral standpoint, unfortunately, morality and the law don't always match up. And understandably so, if the evidence uh, isn't there or the elements of the crime are um, are not there or in the case of uh, Mr. Cosby, whether we like it or not, his due process rights were violated. Therefore, you know, without peeling the onion back on that because I did a show on it. But the bottom line, totally different issue there because big picture uh, with that, there were assurances made to Mr. Cosby. He said things based on those assurances being made, and then he was subsequently, subsequently convicted based on statements that he made that would not have been made uh, if those assurances were not made. And so the court, uh, the appellate court, rightfully found that um, his due process rights were violated because um, he detrimentally relied. Um, it is exactly what it sounds like. He relied to his own detriment on promises made that they went back on. And when it comes to the law and you're uh, making deals with prosecutors, this isn't like dealing with your friends or kids on a playground here, you can have a lollipop. Nope, changed my mind. Doesn't work like that uh, with the law. So um, is he any better than R. Kelly in my mind? No. From a moral standpoint, does it make you feel a little oogie to, or at least for me to say, yeah, he's based on the facts and circumstances of that case, uh, he 
it, uh, is rightfully out of jail. Does it make me feel a little gross? Yes, but knowing and understanding the law and spending the uh, overwhelming portion of my adult life as a defense attorney, um, I I respect it and I and I understand it. Now I say all that to say to those who just automatically jump on the well, look what she did for him, and and it was good. R. Kelly hired her, and now you know all of this is going to work out well. She's a she's a good attorney. She's shown herself to be uh, learned and competent, and and zealously works on behalf of her clients. So anyone would be um, would be blessed to have her. That does not mean that the results are going to be the same, especially if the circumstances are not the same. Now, if given R. Kelly's particular set of circumstances, there are reasons why his conviction should be overturned or reasons why he should get a new trial totally different situation and if she finds them and effectively articulates them to the court then you know you go girl and congratulations uh robert kelly but it's not an automatic thing just because of the bill thing totally different scenario there's been no arguments here that anybody made any agreements with robert kelly quite the contrary i don't think anybody even tried to make any with him but um and if they did they certainly weren't for anything that he wanted so what were the reasons why his uh, attorney asked the court to consider a new trial before even getting to sentencing his attorney submitted a, a brief that of course was um, rebutted by the prosecution and ultimately the court issued an opinion that spanned a hundred pages, over a hundred pages um, of law in fact dealing with this issue. Um, ultimately her main claim was that prior counsel was not effective in selecting a jury that wasn't biased against uh, Mr. Kelly. And she gave many reasons for that. Um, and, and they were all arguments that given what she was working with, I'm not knocking her for making. I mean, everything from the publicity of the trial, um, the location, the types of things he was charged with, the complicated nature of making the connection between what is generally uh what the what racketeering charges are typically used for uh versus how it was used here and making a jury truly understand that and what they needed to find in order to then draw that, you know, make that connection that R. Kelly was the head of a criminal enterprise and that criminal enterprise essentially being the fact that he was R. Kelly. And as I even discussed, uh, because that charge troubled me a bit, the fact that the things these individuals were doing for him were things that arguably most 
people, assistants, gophers, staff, etc., roadies, even groupies, do for people in that particular line of work because there's just a different kind of relationship and um it's just very loosey-goosey if you will it's not the same as if you're working in a bank in terms of uh the things that it's considered generally acceptable that people may do in the entertainment industry for their boss versus um versus in other realms and i personally had questions about whether or not uh that could really be racketeering because the product or the entity was him and his fame so you see how that gets uh rather confusing so how do you make a jury understand that even from the beginning uh because she focused on voir dire when talking about questioning protect uh prospective jurors she also got into um whether or not the questions they were asked were appropriate the actual questionnaires that were used etc ultimately the court ruled and i quote the record shows that the lawyer who conducted the voir dire a lawyer with years of criminal trial experience in both state and federal courts participated actively in the process well i mean we know they were there before the court questioned the prospective jurors counsel went through the questionnaires and made decisions about which jurors were appropriate to question and which to challenge for cause for cause so now she's talking about the actual voir dire process and the discussion that goes on between counsel sometimes uh between counsel as in the prosecution and defense and sometimes even between counsel and the court particularly when we're talking about um striking someone for cause and even more so if the if opposing counsel it's, you know, for one of a better way of putting it or putting it in layman's terms, side eyes what you're claiming for cause. Um, furthermore, the judge said, uh, once the oral voir dire began, counsel demonstrated the thorough knowledge of the information and questionnaires and frequently asked that the court pause, uh, pose additional questions to prospective jurors. So long short, the judge is saying, look, we were all here even before the jury came in the room counsel went back and forth they had not only the questionnaires that were involved because we knew that this was going to be a big case with some complicated concepts so we went through all of that counsel went through the list on paper so the people aren't even in the room yet they went through the list um, and, and it's no different than what I do at state court. So that's why I can uh, speak to it without me having been there. Um, struck people for cause if they chose or just struck them because they wanted to strike them. And then after that process, all of which the judge is saying she observed, after that process, once the oral process began, which is essentially what you may have seen on television, where the 
entire jury pool or whoever can fit in the courtroom came into the room, the counsel then participated in the process of questioning them and not only questioning them, but as far as the court is concerned, demonstrating a thorough knowledge of what they were doing in terms of the types of questions they were asking, use of the questionnaire, and even stopping and engaging the court itself, as in the judge, in the process. So bottom line, the judge is saying, if you're saying that this person it was incompetent, it, it, that you can go to the grave if you want to, feeling that that was your opinion. But based on what I saw in my own experience as a judge doing this every day, and I'm I'm you know speaking as if I'm Judge Ann Don Donnelly, I saw competent counsel standing in front of me, actively engaged in the voir dire process and asking questions and making decisions no different than any other lawyer that comes into my courtroom or in fact, any other lawyer that day, i.e. the counterparty, the prosecution, who was also asking questions, participating in the process and engaging me in the process. And I think that it definitely drives the, the point home uh, in terms of how the court felt about that issue when the court mentions that counsel engaged the court in that process, because that speaks to the fact that the court, uh, it, it speaks to the fact that the court is trying to relay to everybody, look, I paid attention. I wasn't just sitting there letting them run amok. Counsel did, the prosecution did their thing. The defense did their thing. And they even got me wrapped up in it doing my thing. I didn't get to just sit there and let them pick a jury. They even engaged me in the process. So no, if this is what your rationale is for a new trial, sorry, try again. We're going to sentence this mofo. So ultimately they get on with sentencing. Sentencing went on for three hours and it was by the accounts of the individuals who reported on it because it's federal court, so there's no cameras. Um, a very emotionally charged situation at some point, uh, or at one point, one of the witnesses, several victims spoke, um, upwards of six. I counted at least the ones whose names were in the New York Times article. There was about six, but I want to say it was somewhere between six and 11 victims spoke. So there was a lot. And um, they spoke and one of them even addressed him because while she was speaking, he leaned over to speak to his counsel and she flat out said to him, you know, said something to him of the effect of, you know, am I interrupting you? So, um, yeah, it, it, it was pretty charged. He did not speak at all, which is yet another thing that stood out to the court in terms of the have of the issue of having remorse or rather the lack thereof, which never sits well, just got to tell you. 
doesn't usually sit sit well. Um, and I get it in the sense that if you don't feel it, it's always one of those tough things. And and again, especially coming from it from the perspective of a defense attorney, because on the one hand, you could get up and say something like what Gielan Maxwell said, which is kind of like, you know, I'm sorry this happened to you. So it's almost like one of those non-apologies where you say, I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said. I meant what I said, and I didn't mean to offend you. I'm just sorry that you were offended by it. So, you know, it's kind of like, I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry if, you know, that kind of thing. And so that is, has its own, you know, un uncomfortable place, its place of disquiet in the spirit, in, in the spirit of the try uh, of the trier factor of the judge in terms of the remorse piece, because then it's obvious uh, that you're saying something because someone told you, like your attorney, that you need to say something, but it still isn't quite getting you there to the remorse point. But on the flip side of that, if you have maintained and continue to maintain, especially if you are appealing until the end of time, your case, that you are not guilty, then it's going to be hard to navigate that minefield when it comes to um, the court looking for something from you by way of um, being affected emotionally, particularly when uh, victim impact statements are read or victims uh, come personally to speak as they did in his case. Um, it's hard because if in your heart of hearts, whether you really did not commit the crime or you committed the crime, you just don't believe what you did was a crime. Uh, why are you going to um, cop to it? Because part of expressing remorse, it comes from a place of accepting responsibility for what it is you are accused of doing. Um, admitting guilt, or in the case of maybe just reckless behavior, at least accepting responsibility for putting the events in place or putting a situation into motion that led to whatever catastrophic event you're dealing with in court. Um, kind of like you're somebody who may have been driving, just reckless driving, speeding and all kinds of stuff. And you caused an accident that resulted in death. There's no question. Everybody knows that you probably didn't mean to kill anybody except maybe yourself if you had a death wish. And I think that that's understood, but you can still show proper remorse by at least acknowledging, uh, how you feel 
um, some level of guilt or something about putting conditions in place that led to the unfortunate events. So, you know, it's, it's very tricky when you're talking about remorse, but ultimately, if the court does not believe, despite what you may feel and what you may believe about yourself, if the court does not believe you, the jury doesn't believe you, and the judge does not believe you, everybody in that room thinks that you're guilty, then they're really not going to care that you don't feel that you're guilty because they believe you're guilty. They want to see remorse. They would like to see that even if you believe, even if you maintained your innocence to the last possible second of the jury announcement um, of those guilty verdicts, and you have nothing to say that day that perhaps in the interim while you were waiting to be sentenced, which is typically the case uh, nowadays, that you have come to terms with the situation and are willing to move forward, <clears throat> excuse me, in that realm of acceptance. It doesn't always happen. And I, and again, I know it, kind of one of those weird balancing acts to say, well, why should that be held against you if the person's maintaining their uh, that they're innocent? But I guess despite this long explanation I gave you, what it boils down to is it doesn't matter if everybody else thinks you're guilty. So ultimately, after all of them spoke, the judge uh, so I'll tell you his guidelines, interestingly enough, because despite all of the things that we have seen R. Kelly be accused of, or some, if you saw the video, uh, saw him do over the years and the, the issues in multiple states and the drama he's got going on with parents and, and the weird alleged sex cult and girlfriends. And despite all of those things, um, he does not, he's never been convicted of anything or, or if he has, um, it's been nothing substantial. He's not a convicted felon. He's not been convicted of anything of the type. I mean, I don't know if he has any juvenile stuff, but he's not been convicted of anything, um, of the nature that it would heighten his uh, his sentencing guidelines. So his guidelines were actually very similar to um, Gila Maxwell's, where they were, you know, like between that um, fifteen to twenty year mark. So the prosecution this this was an interesting one because the prosecution was asking for twenty years. The defense was asking for uh, for the judge to not exceed 10. And what the defense uh, primarily wanted the court to focus on was the fact that he grew up poor, um, his learning issues, and the fact that he, uh, he that R. Kelly himself had um, 
several instances of sustained um, sexual abuse uh, as a child. The court, interestingly enough, ignored both of them and said that they would have, that the sentence that she was imposing was regardless of the guidelines. So it sounds to me like the court read both sides sentencing memoranda and certainly was prepared to come in court and allow the victims to have their say, because if there's nobody else that you uh, care about on sentencing day, if you don't care about the defendant or anybody else, you want to care about the the victims, especially if it's uh, a crime of the nature and type that uh, it is allowable or acceptable to have victims um, provide statements or come and give them in person. But ultimately, this judge seemed to make no bones about the fact that she already knew what the hell she was going to do when she got in there. Um, yet another quote from the judge is she said these crimes were calculated and carefully planned and regularly executed for almost 25 years. You taught them that love is enslavement and violence. So U.S. District Court Judge Ann Donnelly played no games with him and deviated from the guidelines and went even higher than even the prosecution asked and sentenced him to what amounted to a total of 30 years. So here's the breakdown. On count one, he received 360 months. So that uh, that basically, I mean, just even with the 360 months, right? He got uh, he got a whole bunch of time <laughs> for that. So she, so for that alone, she gave him 360 months. Then, from there, for counts three four, five, seven, and nine. She gave him a combined total of 20 years. And then on counts two, six, and eight, she gave him a total of 10 years. His time is to run concurrently. That means that it could run on top of the other. So let's say she gave, if she had given him five years for each charge, if she had given him five years for each charge and said it's going to run concurrently, then he would only do five years because the, um, because consecutive is one behind the other, concurrent is it runs together. So that is why you, if you have multiple counts, you definitely want concurrent instead of consecutive. Now, this is why, uh, this is kind of the stinger here. This is why the concurrent and consecutive does not help him. Because the 360 months is 30 years by itself. His counts four, five, six, seven, and nine, uh, which is 20 years, is going to run concurrent with that initial 30. So that just, you know, is just kind of there hanging out. And then the counts two, six, and eight, 
that 10 years is going to run together with that 30. So again, it's just hanging out because ultimately it is whichever charge you got the most on that you're going to do and all the fact and and what the fact that they run concurrently does to help you is it helps so it so it's it's a help don't don't get me wrong it's just you know for those who may not understand it's not that much of a help because the 360 months 30 years then he's got 20 years to run concurrent with that 30. That's good because if it ran consecutive, that means it would be after that 30. So he would do 50 years. And then the other counts that he got 10 years on, if it ran consecutive, then he would do 60 years, right? Because it will be one behind the other. So it's running all together. Great. Except one of those things by itself is 30 years just that one count so even if the court were to throw out counts two three four five six seven eight and nine just throw them out it doesn't matter that he was found guilty of them i don't care give him probation on it because he's gonna have five years probation a hundred dollar hundred thousand dollar fine anyway i don't care it doesn't matter he's 55 or something like i think he's 54 or 55 i don't care plus he's got the offenses uh coming up in illinois minnesota so i gave him 360 months on the first charge counts two through nine just uh give him 10 years probation or whatever he's still got the 30 years on that first initial charge so he's going to do 30 years no matter what and of course you know good behavior blah 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 and trust and believe unlike Geelan Maxwell and I'm not saying is any better I'm just stating a fact whether we like it or not he's not going to a minimum security prison now of course there are lots of discussions that we could have about why he's being treated differently but the one that is the court even though it's two different judges and two different individuals making the decisions that they would use for justification if people were to say to the department of corrections where they were both um convicted of sex trafficking why is it different i am sure the argument that would be made uh is that she was definitely convicted of sex trafficking but ultimately as the facilitator whereas he was convicted of sex trafficking and being involved in this as the actual actor he didn't just traffic the girls he was also the one who slept with them and did the things on their behalf so the uh, so i suppose the best way to put it is that the argument would be that if jeffrey epstein was still alive and he was convicted of the things that he was charged with then if he went to minimum security and r kelly did not that would be a better comparison to argue about and say, look, why are these two men being treated differently? It's white, it's black, it's black man, it's, it's white woman, etc. I am not in any way suggesting that there still isn't a conversation to be had about it. Again, just playing devil's advocate because that's what I do. Um, that is going to be the answer 
that is probably going to be advanced by the Department of Corrections if it were to ever be argued about, especially given um, testimony that was had from some of the victims that uh, they were held down, that they were beaten and all of these things. Not that any sex trafficking, particularly when you're dealing with minors of any kind is acceptable, whether you are the madam, the facilitator, the best friend, whatever, none of it is acceptable. So not saying there isn't a conversation to be had, just putting on those little horns to uh, kind of put out there what the answer is going to be. I don't think it's quite apples and oranges, but that's what the answer is going to be if the question gets asked. Because R. Kelly ain't going to no damn minimum security. You can hang that up. He will be 70 years old, 80 years old, and will be serving his time wherever the hell they put him. But it is not going to be in Camp Cupcake. You can bet your bottom dollar on that shit. So what's next for R. Kelly? According to his attorney, he is going to be appealing the case. That's something that we anticipated in hell. He got 30 years. I mean, of course, I mean, you ain't got nothing to, nothing but time. So as if you got some money to go along with it or individuals who are willing to pay for it or attorneys who are even willing to work for free just because of the name and the possibility that they might luck up into some kind of a breakthrough in the case, which of course would give them a certain amount of notoriety, then, you know, because that happens every day, um, then... Uh, you know, nothing to do but time. Kind of like when I deal with uh, probation, I, I used to, um, when I was a public defender years ago, one of my assignments at least twice a month was probation violation day. And so however many clients I had on that day, especially because I was in a jurisdiction that was a lock them up, hang them high jurisdiction um, when it came to probation violations. So however many clients I had that day, if there was 10 people going to jail, then I could anticipate that I was probably going to have at least five or six new bar complaints. Why? Because when you're in jail, you don't have anything else to do. You don't have anything else to do but complain. Why not? The system is there for it, whether it's an appeal, whether it's a bar complaint, what is there? And and of course, if you can't come up with anything else about your case, like especially if you're something like a probation violation it, and you did actually violate, like you did test dirty, um, uh, with drugs and alcohol or didn't go to see your probation officer for a year or didn't pay your child support or whatever. So you really don't give your attorney much to work with when they go to court. And then you're in a jurisdiction where the prosecutor's thing is everybody goes to jail and the judges at the time in that particular jurisdiction to remain nameless. But those who practice in this area know which one I'm talking about. Um, so we knew they were going to jail. We tried to tell them they were going to jail. They didn't believe it. And of course, we'll find out when they got to court, they were going to go to jail. And then at that point, what's your defense? 
because if it's a probation violation, you did do it. You know what the rules of probation are. You didn't follow them. So you don't have anything else to argue but the catch-all for everything in effective assistance of counsel. Now, those of us who followed this case knew that aside from questions about the actual charges themselves, not to say that R. Kelly is not a despicable human being, Just I just have questions about the way that he was charged and whether or not these charges, the charges could effectively withstand serious scrutiny. Um, it, you know, it, cause it, it certainly is no, um, indication of my thoughts of whether or not he needs to be off the streets. I, you know, taking off my lawyer hat and putting on my, you know, regular person, woman with a daughter hat, um, he's right where he needs to be but putting the attorney uh, hat back on. Um, yeah, this was a stretch. This this was a reach. Um, did he do some despicable things? Yes, but the how he was charged and what he was convicted of, it, it, it could make a very interesting case for appeal. I think that for the purposes of a request for a new trial prior to him being sentenced, which means the case is not over. So you you can't get into those potential appealable issues. His attorney did the best she could with what she had because there's only certain grounds that are gonna fly at that, uh, at that stage in the case that the judge is even going to consider whether they strike them down or rule in your favor. And in this case, struck them down. Um, so that's fine. The fact that uh, the oral voidir, uh, that the voidir piece didn't fly, um, at least at this stage, is is not determinative of how an appeal will go. But during the course of the case, uh, there are certainly some questions um, and some arguments to be made about some things that were said and some things that went on and how his attorney handled some things in the case. And like I said, in addition to what he was charged with and the way those statutes were used, particularly the racketeering charge, that could make for some interesting appealable issues, especially depending upon what uh, which judges um, who the judges are, rather, that end up reviewing his attorney's petition. Because we already know the the attorney on this case, if she is going to be the one that continues through to the appeal, we already know that she knows what she's doing. So um, at least from a purely um, legal interest, those of us who just like the kind of law of all of this, not even, uh, you know, love R. Kelly or hate R. Kelly or whatever. But, you know, you all hang with me uh, when we talk about these cases, also not just for the tea, but also because of being uh, budding or fellow, excuse me, legal eagles. So um, 
there it, it could make for an interesting case on appeal i will say that especially because it also speaks to <clears throat> the fact that um these racketeering statutes <clears throat> the racketeering statute uh is being used in a lot of places in ways that it was not initially contemplated when put in place. And granted, that happens a lot everywhere with lots of charges because certain issues may not have existed when certain laws were passed. I mean, hell, we know that just with the Constitution. So, um, there are ways as time goes on that laws may be applied um, that it was not contemplated they were going to be applied in that way um, or things that are considered offenses. Again, it wasn't contemplated at the time when those, um, when those laws making certain things illegal were passed. However, just because we know that things may evolve and of course because of uh that evolution um that you know just wasn't contemplated instead of coming up with all new stuff you can use what you have to make it work sometimes it does other times if it is a square peg and a round hole no matter how much you try to grind that sucker in, it's just not going to work. Or if it works, it ain't going to work for long. And it's going to be real easy for somebody to come along and pluck it right back out. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens in that regard. Other than the appeal, so what's next, as I said, are Kelly's next set of cases um, in Illinois. Uh, I did hear at one point there was the possibility of the Illinois and Minnesota cases being put together. I'm not entirely sure how that would happen unless it's in federal court. And the last I knew that the Illinois cases in particular were not in federal court, they were right in Cook County, which also means there is the possibility that we may see a little bit more of the in-court piece than we did, um, well, we didn't see any of the in-court piece um, other than a picture here or there um, in this case because it is in state court. The only thing that makes that a little, we may or we may not, um, because I, I don't there I don't think there's an issue as far as cameras in court in uh, in Illinois. I think the issue is that um, some of these cases deal with sexual assault. So there is the balance, obviously, of the rape shield piece with the um, public interest involved in seeing these matters in court. A lot of the victims, certainly the ones involved in the New York cases, uh, ultimately went public, except for maybe one or two. Um, 
until we get closer, because I, you know, there's so many other um, cases we need to cover between now and the next few weeks, until we get closer and know whether or not the trial is going to go forward, I'm probably not going to waste my time pulling that information. But um, I think when it comes to Chicago, it's about 50-50 in terms of, um, in terms of the victims, like a couple of them whose names are public and a couple who are private. And as long as those individuals opt to remain private uh, because of Rape Shield, that is probably going to impact whether or not uh, the cases are televised. I mean, they, they could always still be televised and not show the victim's face, but um, but we'll see. I'm sure there'll be motions, there will be motions uh, about it, even from the press, especially if the individuals have opted uh, not to keep their name a secret, but just because you don't, uh, just because you are allowing your name to be used, that doesn't necessarily mean that you want the whole world to hear and watch you testify. So um, so we'll see as it relates to that. Personally, I don't think that we need to see and hear everything chapter and verse. We get it. And we certainly get more than enough information from the reporting on the outside because um, they practically give you freaking word for word. So we're, we're good. And uh, reporters can be in the courtroom. It's just not the camera. So you, we get more than what we need. Other than that, that is where we are. So R. Kelly, 30 years. Gielan Maxwell, um, 20. Uh, I did not, I was looking and I'm still, uh, I'll update it in the comments when I find a little bit more about her, about the breakdown of her charges to see if it was 20 flat on one of the charges and then the rest run concurrent like R. Kelly or if it was a bunch of like five years here, five years there, whatever it is that added up to 20 and whether or not it's concurrent or consecutive because um, I was having a hard time trying to find reporting that broke that down as specifically and easily as um, R. Kelly's was broken down. And like I said, it, the, all the other counts really don't matter. When the court gave him 30 years on, the, on just one count, everything else was kind of moot. Um, so anyway, that is where we are. Thank you very much for hanging with your girl. And we are on a roll. That is two in two days. And next we're going to do Andrew Gillum and then we will round it out with Roe v. Wade. So that's going to be kind of how the rest of the week goes. I'm going to spread out posting these, but for those of you who subscribe or who just happen to be online and hear it live, then obviously you're getting them a little sooner. As always, it is my pleasure to be here. I hope that if you are following us on um, on iTunes or iHeartRadio, you are subscribing, you are giving fantastic reviews at five stars, 
Follow us on Spotify. In fact, go every single freaking place you listen to podcasts and click that subscribe button. We are on Google, Acast, TuneIn, um, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and of course here on Podbean. You can hear us everywhere and we don't want you to miss a thing because there is so much going on aside from the ratchet, which I still love reporting on. But of course, you all love hearing about these cases and I love hearing about them too because we get ratchet sometimes with those too. You know, I love it all. Um, I also have uh, coming up an episode that really means a lot to me. It's um, a particularly personal case that uh, deals with the disparity in healthcare, and some of that we are going to touch on in our Dobbs slash Roe v. Wade uh, discussion as well. So um, I really hope that uh, you stick around and tune in for that. It's going to give you a lot of insight into me and, and even why I feel so passionately about some of the things that I do, particularly uh, those matters. As always, you can continue to follow us every day um, on the Fashion and Drama Diaries because I post there with all kinds of stuff every day and we have lots of fun. Make sure that you are following me on social media at uh, Let's Be Honest JJ. That's L-E-T-S-B-E-H-O-N-E-S-T-J-J for Just Jonda. That is on Instagram and Twitter. You can DM me with show ideas, questions, anybody that you want me to talk to. If you want me to talk to you, if you actually have something to talk about, any, any interesting cases in your area you need me to look into, or if it is just downright ignorant, I'd look into that too and we'll talk about it here. Um, other than that, if you are thinking about it and want to talk about it, chances are I am thinking about it and wanting to talk about it with you. And if you also um, help us out on the channel as well, because it helps us do what we do with um, going to our Cash App and Venmo, that's there. So we can continue to be honest together. Look in the comments as well as in the info page for everything that I described. Have a great one.